This is the Business of Apps podcast, bringing you actionable insights from the leaders of the global app industry and the world's fastest growing apps. You can find more app news, data and analysis over at businessofapps.com. Welcome to the Business of Apps podcast. On this show, we invite app industry professionals to cover various topics. And we promise to do our best to keep it both insightful but brief. In this episode, we have Nathan Hudson, founder and CEO at Perceptics. Nathan, welcome to the Venus of Apps podcast. Art, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Awesome. Thank you for coming. All right. Uh, there are roughly 5 million mobile apps between iOS and Android. Roughly speaking, population of Norway. Um, and of course, every single of those apps has its own purpose, and they collectively help all of us work, study, improve our health, entertain ourselves, and more. But as you know, only a handful compared with the total number are really popular and welcomed. In marketing, there is such a notion as product market fit, which indicates how well a certain product satisfies a marketing need, a market need. What does it take to achieve a product market fit for a mobile app? Today, I have Nathan to help us answer this question. But first, as always on the show, before we begin, Nathan, please tell us about yourself and what is your background in marketing? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I started marketing when I was a teenager. Um, my family, my dad has a couple of you know businesses that he runs. One is a, a local martial arts school. Um, the other is a music record label. Um, and I kind of wanted to get involved with these things. So started, you know, PPC back in 2015, um, mm -hmm. Google AdWords, uh, Meta Ads back then. Uh, and that was kind of my introduction to marketing. Um, I mentioned, obviously, you had the record label. At the time, I was doing music as well. Um, and the challenge with making music is the question comes, how do you promote the music, right? Uh, exactly. How do I get people to listen? Uh -huh. um, so I just stuck my head into, you know, organic social media growth alongside these kind of paid ads um, and managed to grow, you know, my artist Instagram page from 5,000 to 60,000 followers in 18 months. Um, and then, you know, off the back of that, built out a small community because I figured you don't need 60,000 people. You need 1,000 people who love what you do, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so did that. And I was convinced that that was going to be my future, um, you know, being an artist in music. Um, but then I got married. And oh, yeah, <laughs> but it's a good thing, right? It's a good thing. Um, I needed more money than music was going to provide. So that's when I kind of switched into a full-time marketing role, um, which was actually ed tech, but, you know, from ed tech to fintech to mobile apps. Um, and now I'm here. Yeah, that's a, that's a great story. And uh, I got to tell you, we all know how hard it is to both be, so to speak, Steve Wozniak and Steve Jobs in the same person, being both guru in the marketing and in the product, like develop it, market it, and uh, make the whole thing click, uh, you know, using just your own single brain. That's a skill. Uh, now I know you launched your company, Perceptics, recently. Please uh, tell us about it. Yeah, so essentially it was um, back last year where I was at Spoke and I was doing some freelancing, right? 
And it got to the point where a lot of people were saying to me, hey, can you help with this? Hey, we'd love to work with you on this. And I was thinking, I would love to work with you too, but I can't, I have a full-time job. Um, and I decided to kind of take a step out and start Perceptics. Um, all of these companies speaking to me were early stage mobile apps. So they didn't have a head of growth. Maybe they had a couple of like one marketing hire and you know product teams and some engineers, but they really needed help finding product market fit, finding their growth levers, understanding their customer and starting to actually, you know, get month to month growth. So I thought, you know what, I'm going to go for it. Um, and then, yeah, completely left my role and started Perceptics. All right. This April at the Promotion Summit in London, you told the story of your journey to achieve both product market fit for this spoke app you just mentioned and managed to grow it month over month. I would like to introduce this story to our listeners. So let's start. How do you define what is product market fit? <laughs> That's a really good question. Um, I think this is a, an interesting question because I think although there's kind of some consensus around it, I think that there's always debate around this. So, I mean, on one hand, I'm beginning to think increasingly that you can't have product market fit if you're a you know company or an app that doesn't generate revenue, right? But of course, the story that we'll get into when I was at Spoke was all about their time pre-revenue. Um, and I suppose on one hand, when you think about the word market, like by definition, a market is, I believe it's an area in which commercial dealings happen, right? And commercial by definition means to make a profit. So if you're not charging, you can't really get product market fit. But on the flip side, if you think about, you know, apps like Instagram, Facebook, WhatsApp, TikTok, social media platforms, mm -hmm. um, I doubt anyone would argue they don't have product market fit. Um, they certainly do. So I think for me, I like to think of product market fit as when you've built something that people love and consistently use, increasingly I add and pay for. Um, and the way I like to measure product market fit is, is threefold. I think one is obviously the classic Sean Ellis survey, you know, that how disappointed would you be if you could no longer use the product, you know, where you aim for 40% of respondents saying very disappointed. I think the other key sign is a flattening retention curve. So if retention curve flattens over time, it means that people, you know, stop dropping off. They cease to drop off. They cease to churn, in which case you've built something that people can consistently use. Um, and the final one, as strange as it may be, is, you know, having great qualitative feedback, having great reviews, great testimonials, and really just hearing from people how much they love what you've built and they love your product. Sometimes, you know, you can have good retention, but people don't love what you have. Um, I think if you can find these three things, then you found product market fit. Yeah, this is great. I like that you put this number on just to measure product market fit, because obviously you can measure like the financial part. Are you making money? But the, the second component, how people are satisfied, if this is just the general, uh, a more uh, notion in your brain, like, I'm, am I getting there? Are they uh, satisfied or not? Like, if I can measure it, like on a certain, I don't know, on a quarter basis, or monthly, whatever, it, it makes sense to uh, gouge the interest, the satisfaction of your customers. You can actually see where you are. 
Are you still, uh, are, are you getting there? Have you achieved product market fit? Or are you basically just sliding down and you haven't noticed that you have to just go back to square one and see what you're doing wrong and uh, correct your path, right? Exactly, exactly. So um, what challenges did you face at the beginning of your journey? What was really hard? It's a good question. I think it was a unique, well, I say unique, it's not so unique. I guess uh, all early stage apps like startups are there. Um, but there were, I would say, three clear problems or challenges to overcome. The first was that budgets were very, very small. So we're talking about, you know, £3,000, what's that, you know, just over $5,000 a month um, as a marketing budget. And that was across all channels. Sometimes when I tell people that, they think, oh, yeah, per channel, right? 3000 mm -hmm. on Meta, 3000 no, all in. Um, so that obviously limits what you can do, makes it very hard to learn, you know, especially with obviously, you know, the learning phase in Meta and different attribution issues, like a small budget to work with makes those things even more challenging. I think the second one was that when I joined Spoke, there wasn't necessarily such a clear value proposition. Um, so essentially a lot of people want growth and their focus is let's grow. But if you haven't got a really strong foundation to build from, then it's hard to grow anything. Um, and obviously product market fit is that foundation. But even before that, if you haven't got a clear value proposition, um, it's hard for any marketer to do a good job. Um, and the third one is one which we grappled with a lot, but I think as a team did really well. And I think the, the founders were absolutely instrumental in like pushing this and cultivating this, which was how we balance the investor um, goals with the company goals right like there were times where we realized we need to focus purely on the product purely on retention and that means that we need to divert resource there and it means that top line growth might not you know head where we want it to you know number of new signups isn't going to increase this month because we're not focused there and i think investors don't like that um and of course that means that founders don't like that but sometimes it's what the company needs and we were kind of pulling on these three strings, budget, investors, you know, and kind of making it work. Yeah, especially the last part of your challenge really resonates with me. It is hard to create something great on a production line. Like, are you creating something inspiring, useful, helping people and um, making it work for as much folks who are using the app as possible? And uh, you're not constrained, like um, in, in some way, like what you can hear from Apple when they talk about their results and, you know, financial calls every quarter to ask them the questions, they say, we really focus on delivering the product that make us, our user, users happy. This is the bottom line. Yeah, you may see the numbers are going up and down every quarter. Um, of course, you know, um, people who invest money in the company may be happy less or more on every, you know, uh, any occasional quarter. But the bottom line is if people are happy with the product we're, we're creating and consistently trust us, this is the major goal. This is the bottom line for us. Yeah, I mean, I think... It, maybe it's an oversimplification to say, but if you build something that people genuinely love and you can communicate it to those people, 
like in the long term, your business will grow, right? The app will grow. Now, of course, there's so many variables, right? Um, yeah, economics, right? It's not as simple as I put it, but at a base level, if you hold on to that principle, move in that direction with that kind of, you know, customer obsessed mindset, the customer centrality, ultimately you will get there. And I guess feel more fulfilled um, if you set out with a vision to help a set of people with a specific problem. Exactly. Let's put some KPIs on the table. What did you manage to achieve throughout your journey as the head of growth at the Spoke app? Yeah, so I think there were two metrics that we wanted to hit. I think the first one was for us internally, in terms of that product market fit survey, we were aiming for 40%. Um, we managed to get it up to 43% uh, and then up to 47%. Um, and the other core metric was the month-to-month -month growth. So despite me saying that top-line growth wouldn't increase, we increased 20% month-to-month. Um, so that was kind of in the pitch deck. It was 20% month-to-month growth. Mm -hmm. Now, when we say that, a lot of people think, oh, you, so you mean top-line growth? No, um, we focused on monthly actives. So it was 20% increase to monthly active users across a 12-month period, uh, month on month. And I think the key thing there is that when you're playing with monthly actives, there are many levers you can pull, right? You could send a lot more traffic top of funnel, have you know not much of it convert, and then see a 20% uplift. Or you can keep traffic the same as it was last week, drive a whole load of onboarding improvements, and then see the 20% uplift. Or you can go back to people who signed up six months ago, re-engage some of them, 20% uplift. Or people who signed up two months ago, you maybe improved the product, brought out some new features, and you retained them longer at month six, 20% uplift. Um, so that was kind of the headline metric that we were aiming for, and we did manage to, to achieve. Now, I know that monthly active users are kind of a generic uh, KPI used so many by so many developers, but I always wonder, like, um, how did you guys define for yourself what is active user on a specific month? Because whenever I see the notifications from LinkedIn app, that basically just lure me in to see something in the app, which may not be uh, an interest for me, but I actually click on the app anyway, because I see the notification, I have to check it. And I know that it bump up the metric for LinkedIn right at this point. So what was your definition? What, what actually means to have an active user on a monthly basis? Yeah, that's a really good question. So we weren't trying to trick anyone, right? I think we knew that if we start speaking about this metric, the first thing investors are going to say is, what do you mean by monthly active? Um, so we kind of set the barrier fairly high, I suppose. Um, it was a music-based app, right? So Spoke um, has mindfulness music, you know, whether it be R&B, um, Afrobeat, for sleep, for focus, for meditation. We class an active user as someone who's completed one whole session in that month. So the challenge is some sessions were five minutes, but some sessions were one hour long. Um, and actually the sleep sessions, which we saw people really love, they were longer. So we were classing a monthly active user as someone who's listened to one hour of the app, they're active. So we didn't set it like application opened, right? Mm -hmm. Or um, 
play button pressed or something right. small. It was, you know, session completed because that way we could achieve it for, you know, the pitch deck and for the investors. But at the same time, internally as a team, we knew that we were making progress. Um, I guess it's probably worth saying our North Star metric at the time was total minutes listened to. Um, and well, it varied. At one point it was sessions completed and then it became minutes listened to. And I think sessions completed has a strong correlation um, or connection rather to minutes listened to. So we base our MAUs off of our North Star metric. Yeah, this is really important because I know my own experience that measuring uh, KPIs for a podcast or any um, media, you always wonder, um, okay, um, should I really look at the numbers of how many people open the video, uh, watch for a few seconds, or is there a chance I can actually measure how many folks actually watch the entire uh, movie, the entire uh, media file in general? Because at the end of the day, you do want to deliver, like you're not producing content for the sake of producing. You want to people listen, watch, read your stuff. So are they getting to the end of your piece of content or not? This is important. Uh, and inflating your numbers, being happy with your you know, reporting, we're growing is crazy. But at the end of the day, you're just, uh, just uh, you know, ballooning your numbers you're not creating any meaningful impact on your users um yeah um if you had a chance to repeat your journey again what would you like to do different that's a really good question actually i think honestly i think for me uh, stepping into that role at spoke um it was my first time as a head of growth I had already been a growth lead before, but not quote unquote head of growth. I kind of had some learnings that I wanted to put into play. Mm -hmm. So in essence, this kind of was my first time, but second time round, right? I was like, okay, I feel like I've learned some things. Let's try. So looking back, I don't think there's many things I would have changed. I think we made really good decisions and were really strategic and followed a strong process. But I think there is one thing that I would most definitely go back in time and tell myself, hey, push this forward, um, which was actually integrating the paywall into the app. Obviously, I spoke a, a little bit earlier about is product market fit really product market fit if you're not charging users? I think there's a big challenge with a free app with the intention of adding a subscription model later, which is you're optimizing every experiment every piece of learning around someone who may or may not buy your product, which means that you're essentially listening to the wrong people. We really were big on listening to our customers, right? Not just the typical, oh, speak to your customers, but we wanted to really understand the problem and the reason why that problem impacted their life and how it manifested itself. So for example, if we take sleep, if they're like, I struggle sleeping, we're like, okay, so what right can't you just like yeah. make do they're like no because like when I struggle sleeping I wake up the next day and I can't perform well in my job or you know I wanted to go to the gym in the mornings but my sleep was meaning that I couldn't do that because I was too tired I slept past my alarm every day so those kind of things were what we were doing being close to the customer but when you're that close to the customer and they're not paying and then you have a goal to add a paywall in 
you've been listening to potentially the wrong people. Uh, and that's really dangerous because all you're doing is pushing the truth down the line, right? You're not really, you're not really fooling anyone. You, you're kind of building a false sense of accomplishment, but just pushing a harsh truth down the line. If you were to learn this sooner, you'd have more time to pivot. And I think that if I could go back, I would say, you know, week one, month one, at the paywall, and then do everything else the same. If you have any takeaways for our listeners, what would they be from your experience with Bespoke App? Yeah, I think one of them really is this this idea of the relationship between the you know the developers of the app and the customer. I think you know no one argues that you shouldn't speak to your customer, right? I don't think I've heard anyone say that. Everyone always says speak to your customer, but no one really speaks around the nuances into that, right? Like I kind of touched on, you can speak to your customer at a surface level, but there's the answer behind the answer, right? I think that's something that I would recommend people to look for, which is, you know, the answer behind the answer. What is it the customer really wants? But aside from that, I think this understanding that the customer will tell you what to build just isn't true. And I think now I spend a lot of time working with, you know, a lot of first time founders um, and a lot of early stage startups who maybe have read some LinkedIn posts or listened to some podcasts and think, yeah, we just need to, you know, listen to our customers and ask them, what do you want? And they'll tell us. And it's, it's just not true, right? It's like the, the classic Henry Ford line, which mm -hmm. is if I asked everyone what they wanted, they would have told me faster horses. And I think this is where maybe as growth people or as, you know, analytical people, right? People who love data and they love quantitative data, there can be um, a concern, right? A concern that if there's no fixed data point to tell me I should do this, maybe I shouldn't do this. And I think this is where intuition comes in. I think if you're speaking to your customers and you have empathy, then your intuition is going to help you a lot. And I think a prime example of this is you can ask your customer what their problem is and they can tell you their problem better than anyone else. And if you take the time to listen, you can build empathy for that problem. And then with that empathy and your intuition, you can you know, come up with a suggestion or a solution which might fix their problem. So if this is a feature in your app or if this is a new app altogether, that's what you should do. But it's not because you said to them, hey, what should I build? And they tell you it's a it's a process. It's a an art and a science. Yeah, that's that's the ultimate combination. And yeah, it's, it's exactly a great point. People can tell you about their problems, but they're not in a position to tell you how exactly to fix it, so to speak. And this is always up to you. Um, otherwise, just just like, yeah. Quoting Henry Ford, we will be delivering them faster horses, faster, faster Tesla driven by horses. That will be amazing. Um, <laughs> okay, uh, uh, Nathan, been in digital marketing space for a while. Uh, what would you like to change about mobile marketing the most? I feel like you probably hear the same thing every time you ask on this question, I think if I had a magic wand that I could wave and change one thing or click my fingers and change something, it would be um, attribution issues. Oh yeah. Yeah. I think that, and maybe not for the reason you think, right? I personally 
don't mind that there's less data to see. I think that it is what it is. Of course, in an ideal world, we'd have all the data um, and we'd be able to see everything clearly um, and it would all be unaggregated data. And we'd be able to see, you know, the exact postcode where our users are um, when they sign up and all these kind of things. But I think that the challenge is for you know myself historically and maybe for a lot of marketers out there is that the marketers always reporting to someone right and communicating to another stakeholder right and i think the challenges in mobile marketing are that we as mobile marketers may have a conclusion and a piece around our attribution but the other stakeholders in the business don't right so that stakeholder looks at your 70% accurate data, like, yeah, but it's only 70% accurate. Like, what if the other 30% transformed it all and they're uncomfortable? And then you as the marketer spend all this time trying to bring a better solution to them, um, which you can't really do. And I think if attribution was fixed, then I wouldn't have to spend so much time repeating myself in these conversations. Um, so that'd be the one thing I would change. In other words, Apple, please help me to convince the people who give me the money for the project that I'm doing right. Am I? Am I? Am, am I? I'm not uh, hallucinating. Uh, there are data that can back up what I'm saying. Oh boy. Um, okay, we are transitioning to the second smaller part of the show, uh, where once we're done with the topic on the table, I take a chance to ask a few questions uh, to every guest on the show so people who are listening to us can know them better. Here we go. So what smartphone do you have now? Are you been switching between these two giants or just staying one side of the fence all the time? Good question. So I have an Oppo. Um, I don't know which one. I need to upgrade my phone. It's uh, two years old. Well, it's um, the Android side. Right. Yeah, Android side. But I, of course, I do have a, an Apple phone, um, an iPhone for testing, purely for testing, because, you know, I'm in apps. How can I not? Exactly. Oppo, it's actually, you're, you're the first guest who mentions the brand, because I know about the brand, but why did you make a choice to take Oppo as opposed to other brands? Yes, it's a good question. No specific reason. I went into the phone store and the guy sold me an Oppo, right? He was like, yeah, you need this. Um, I think he was an Oppo fan and then he just convinced me and it was cheaper. So I thought I'll go for it. Got you. All right. Um, back in time, what was your mo first mobile phone? The one you could put in your pocket, but you know, before uh, the smartphone era. Wow. I'm not sure. I It was some sort of Nokia. Um, it didn't have a camera, but it did have Snake. So I could play that Snake game. It was the most oh. important thing. Yeah, no camera. <laughs> Who needs a camera? You have a snake. All right. Uh, back to present. I imagine you've left your home and your Oppo smartphone sitting on your table or whatever. So you're outside. The smartphone is not with you. What is the most missing feature for you? Gosh, I think it depends on where I'm going. If I'm going somewhere that I've never been before, the Maps app, not having a map, um, is going to be a massive problem for me. I cannot find my way around that well. Um, but if I'm somewhere where I am usually, it's going to be the ability to listen to music. If I can't listen to music on my phone, I'm going to be, you know, a little bit irritable. 
Yeah, you're uh, yet another person who mentions uh, Google Apps or Apple Maps as the means for navigation. Uh, I'm, I'm, I think I can reasonably conclude that we're using Google Maps as the extension of our brain uh, on a daily basis. We just not realize this is happening. Where where our smartphone is part of your conscious, <laughs> and at least when it comes to navigation. Yeah. Uh, we yet to see what ChatGPT will do with this equation later. <laughs> um, what new technologies are you most excited about? Um, hardware, software, and I'm not asking, um, you know, specifically to do something more with your phone, but for some people just striking a better balance. So what is it for you? What is missing in your smartphone for you? That's a really good question. I don't think there's anything missing from my smartphone i guess this is the question right if you were a developer you're asking me what to build i would be yeah. useless at helping you um i think now i'm thinking about the problems i have i think for me i have a lot of apps i have and a lot of communication methods on my phone right like slack uh, some people message me on skype still right um the whatsapp obviously gmail different mail apps and i think having all these notifications at the same time is really frustrating and having to turn them all off and you know or do not disturb there's not specifically or at least not that i found a great way to manage all of those notifications unless there is maybe you know one but i think if there was a way to more easily manage the apps that send me notifications at different times in the day that would, you know, really help productivity. Yeah, this is a really hard one. I don't think there's a solution for this problem specifically on the iOS side either. Of course, there are a bunch of um, settings you can use for the, for the focus mode you're setting up for work, uh, sleep. Uh, but, you know, it's easier for sleep. You're just uh, dropping all notifications. That's the easiest case. But when it comes to how good it should, you know, balance between letting you know about important stuff and then kind of going, you know, moving away from your path uh, when it should let you just be free of any um, uh, distraction. This is kind of intelligence setting. And unless it can learn on the way just to customize it for your needs, I don't think you can, you can even set up a set of features, uh, you know, kind of a general case. So yeah, I think it's tough probably, you know, both sides, Android and iOS are working on it because it's really important. It's subtle. You may not realize how intrusive it is, how we actually ruin your day, uh, you know, uh, piece by piece. But yeah, it may be really um, disturbing. Uh, yeah. I hear you. Yeah, maybe I'll, maybe it's the next app to develop, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Waiting for, for the app is waiting for it to be developed. Okay, before I let you go, very, very final question. How can people get in touch with you and get more information about what you do? Yeah, so I think my LinkedIn is always a great place um, to go. My name, Nathan Hudson, on LinkedIn. Um, or, you know, my website, um, or our website, perceptics.com, is a good place to contact us. We're actually starting a blog soon. Um, so we're going to have some, you know, great content for early stage startups specifically apps looking to you know you know find product market fit you know get the metrics they need for the next funding round find channels that they need get started with aso all of the good stuff um so the website is a great place awesome
Nathan, thank you so much for coming on the show and spending time with us. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. And that was Nathan Hudson, founder and CEO at Perceptics. To listen to more episodes, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts. Just search for Business of Apps and you will find us easily. Remember, we release episodes on Mondays. So subscribe and you will be able to get new episodes on your smartphone, tablet, or computer if you're still listening to episodes of a podcast on a computer as we release them. And please don't forget to leave us a review or comment on iTunes. It is highly appreciated. And all episodes will also be available on businessofapps.com. Thank you for listening. See you next week. Thank you for listening to the Business of Apps podcast. For more, head on over to businessofapps.com.